Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. I'm one of the hosts of the podcast. My name is Kevin Valentin. And I'm the other host of the podcast. My name is Kyle Dabrow. Yep. We had an action-packed weekend, my guy. But other than that, how you doing, bro? I'm good, man. I mean, probably a little bit less than you are, or a little bit worse than you are. Your team got a dub. My team got embarrassed. So, typical Sunday for me, usually. Yeah, but you're still rocking the cold shirt proudly, so... I Proudly that. is uh, an understatement, considering I just got to do laundry. I didn't want to change shirt, dirty one, got a shower. You know what I'm saying? It's one of those lazy days where you just kind of sit on the couch after you get home, and you're just like, oh, God, I'm not changing. Yeah, it's like <laughs> I'm just, I just decided to rock this, and I'm just going to stick with it. It is what it is. It's it, Trust me, don't get it twisted. There's no support here. It's, it's, it's absolute frustration, but we'll get into that probably a little bit later in the week because we got a, a crazy slate. Kyle, I've realized something. Every time we make a prediction on a week being like boring or something like that, there ends up being some crazy ass games. Am I wrong? Oh, 100%. It's, I can tell you what, we're not psychic in that regard. So no. just because we only covered what, like three or four games in the last episode uh, that we dropped on Friday. So and yep. we were kind of like on the fence on whether or not like these games were really going to live up to expectations. I know we'll get to it, but like the Seahawks and Giants one, like that was kind of an entertaining game, but. I mean, you know, games that we're going to cover, I don't even think we even remotely thought of covering last week just because they didn't seem like that consequential, but here we are. Yep. So without further ado, let's just dive into the agenda. Guys, we're going to talk about a little bit of the NFL, small little NBA tidbit, and then of course, you know, just keeping you guys updated with the progress of what we're going to be doing throughout the week. But to go over the slate... We're going to go over the Giants and the Seahawks game. That was our game of the week. Uh, Obviously, the Seahawks come away with a win. I had the Giants favored. Kyle had the Seahawks, so kudos to my partner. Uh, To move into the next game, the battle of the NFC West continues. The 49ers once again proved to be better than the Rams, at least this season. That is a 2-0 sweep for the Niners, and they move on to, what is it, 3-4? and or Excuse me, 4 and... They are 4 and... 4 and 4. They haven't had a bye. Yeah, Yeah, okay. Yeah, they're 4 and 4. I was thinking they were 3 and 5, and then they went to... I thought the same thing, and I'm sitting here like, hold on a second. I had to open the tab back up. Uh, Obviously, once again, another game that we just did not see coming in terms of the Rams getting skunked in the second half, but here we are. (laughs) And then this is going to be the game that is like the piece de resistance for us. Dude, the Panthers and the Falcons game. Who would have thought, right? What in the... Guys, if you saw that game, it was entertaining from beginning to end. The the, the Falcons end up winning in overtime, but man, what a game with some crazy circumstances to put it into the position that it was. 
I was privy to watch most of that game. Don't ask me why, but I was watching a lot of it and it was just absolutely insane from beginning to end. So that's going to probably be one of our biggest points to talk about today. Following that, which is a game we did talk about and we both predicted the win, the Cardinals go and face the Vikings. The Cardinals made it a lot closer of a game than what we both anticipated, but the Vikings come out on top by the skin of their teeth. Kyler Murray and the uh, and the Cardinals look to be driving and moving along with DeAndre Hopkins, but just could not get it done. And uh, the Vikings move to 6-1 and one and obviously take a stranglehold on the NFC North. Once again, another prediction that your, uh, your friendly neighborhood podcast boys predicted. So, you know, moving on. The uh, the last game that we're going to talk about is just the complete opposite of the last two. The Raiders get skunked. They lose twenty four to zero to the Saints. That I, you have DeAndre, excuse me, you have Devonte Adams, you have Derek Carr. I know you don't have Darren Waller. Josh Jacobs has been a man on a mission the last couple of weeks, and you don't score a single point. Uh, guys, we'll get into that abomination of a game at the end, and then to close it out with, of course, some NBA news. The, the, the Nets, the Lakers, they're a combined 1-10 and 10 this season with the star power of KD, Kyrie, Russell Westbrook, AD, and LeBron James. You figure the combined five all-stars that they have between the two teams, they'd be a lot better, right? It's the complete opposite. They're absolutely crappy. They're just, they, they have completely underperformed. And I mean, Kyle has already said it for his Lakers, but that's just, it, it was written on the walls before the season even started. It's just, we didn't expect it to be this bad this early. And then for the Nets, you throw Ben Simmons struggling bum ass in that lineup and it just makes an already dysfunctional team even worse. So Kyle, without further ado, man, we got an action pack slate here. Let's just get right into it. And let's just go into the Giants and the Seahawks. Obviously the Giants were five and one, excuse me, six and one. And they were traveling into Seattle. They look to potentially take the Seahawks off of their, uh, Incredible homestead. They are now, after this game, 3-1 and one at home, which is just absolutely incredible. The 12th man is coming back alive. And Geno Smith continues his consistency this season. So, Kyle, I'm posing this one to you. How can the Seahawks maintain this going forward? And how did they manage to take away Saquon Barkley out of this game? Well, I thought they were extremely effective in just stacking the box. And if the Giants were going to win the game, it was not going to be because of Saquon. Just because... Let's face it, is Daniel Jones essentially that guy to lead the Giants to the promised land? So far as this season, he's been fine. He hasn't really turned the ball over as much as he, as he has in the past. And you combine that with what they've done with Saquon, the Giants have been relatively successive, uh, successful this year. But not in this game. I thought the Seahawks did a great job in essentially containing Saquon to a rather I would say, inconsistent day. There were some plays where he was able to bounce out, uh, pick up some first downs for the Giants. But by and large, the Seahawks were able to hold him relatively solid the entire day. And the way that I look at it, the Giants really don't have that good of a receiving core right now just because a lot of guys are dealing with injuries. And a lot of the receivers that they have in the fold right now are essentially second-string and third-string receivers. So the Giants' offense is already kind of at a disadvantage to begin with. And really this year they've leaned on their defense to kind of get them these wins combined with the fact that the offense isn't turning the ball over well you go up a t you go up against a team like the Seahawks who have been one of the biggest surprises that both you and I have seen this year you got to be on your a game because even though that the Seahawks they're a decent team to contend with the Giants had the requisite pieces to be able to beat the Seahawks but they just weren't able to and you know, just to kind of focus on Seattle here, 
Seattle just continues to find different ways to win these games because a lot of times this year, they've had to really rely on their offense to score points just because their defense can be suspect at times. But I'm going to be honest with you. I thought they did a great job against that Giants offense today, holding them to 13 points, really limiting them across the entire span of the game. And even though the game was relatively close going into the fourth quarter, the Seahawks outscored the Giants 14 to three in that quarter and essentially ran away with the game, winning by two possessions. And I think just when it comes to the success that the Seahawks have had, it's been a very complimentary effort because Geno's having one of the best seasons I've ever seen him have. It's not just, oh, like this is like a year that we can compare to in the past and he's living up to some of his former expectations when he was a member of the Giants. That was never the case. He was relatively an inadequate quarterback with the Jets back in the day, but he's in a new situation with the Seahawks and he's taking advantage of it. And until he really starts kind of turning the ball over, which at this point I don't really see happening just because he's been relatively consistent the entire year and not turning the ball over. I think the Seahawks offense is going to continue to do well here. And not only that, they're getting decent contributions from the ground game with Kenneth Walker. And then in the passing game, he's got decent targets to throw to. Tyler Lockett is just a seasoned vet who just knows how to gain separation and is just rock solid in their wide receiving core. And then you have DK Metcalf, who I didn't even think was actually going to play in this game because he's been dealing with a lingering injury issue. But he goes out against the Giants today and ends up scoring a touchdown. And he was just as contributive to that Seahawks offense as Tyler Lockett was. I also thought they got good contributions from Disley. And the fact that Geno Smith didn't turn the ball over, it put them in positions to win that game against the Giants. And to me, you know, it, we have to talk about the Seahawks and whether or not they can be a legitimate contender in the NFC. Because going into this game, Kev, like you said, the Giants were 6-1 and one and have been one of the best stories that we've seen in the NFL so far this year. Now we really got to consider what the Seahawks are because nobody expected them to be in this position where they'd be in first place in the NFC West eight weeks into the season. And with the way that they've been playing, I think there's a very good chance that they can pull off the next couple games that they have on their slate here. They got to go up against the Cardinals next week, and then they play the Buccaneers the week after. Those are two winnable games for them. And I think as long as they just continue to have a balanced effort offensively, and their defense is opportunistic, get some turnovers, puts that offense in a short field to work with against the defense that they're going up against. The Seahawks have a winning formula here. So we'll see what happens. I'm still a little bit iffy on them being able to maintain this for the rest of the year, but for the next two weeks, I think there's a very good chance that they can bump up to a 6-3 and three and then potentially a 7-3 and three record if they play their cards right. But all in all, it was a great effort from Seattle against the Giants, and I think if they're able to maintain it, we should definitely watch out for them once we start getting into the later stages of November and into December. This team is for real. There's not really much I can add to that aside from the fact that I need to circle on one big statistic here, and that is the fact that they got to Daniel Jones five times. The Seattle Seahawks have not been known for their defense over the course of the last couple of years, especially towards the end of Russell's tenure there. Uh, the Legion of Boom was gone. They were broken apart. They were struggling to really lock anybody up. Obviously, they go and acquire Jamal Adams, who hasn't been healthy. And then you go and you shut out one of the better teams in the league in the Giants. 
Obviously, like I said, they sacked Daniel Jones five times, right? They go and they get 10 quarterback hits. He was pressured the majority of the game. The Giants offensive line fell apart, and they weren't able to run the football. So when you talk about protection, opening up run lanes for one of the best backs, if not the best back in the league this season, Daniel Jones has had to rely on his arm the entire time. And of course, he had to rely on his legs, but he wasn't able to get space out there in the open field because he was never able to get past the first layer of pressure at the line of scrimmage. Now, I will give the Giants defense credit because Kenneth Walker only had 51 yards on 18 attempts. So they did what they needed to do on the ground as well in terms of limiting Seattle. But when you put the shoulders, or excuse me, when you put the weight of the Seahawks on Geno Smith's shoulders that he has just shown time and time and time again, he's able to hold it. He's able to produce. He's able to keep the ball away from the other team. And even though he was sacked a couple of times and hit a few times, it wasn't enough to de- de- derail the success of Seattle's defense as well as the consistency of their offense because they popped off for 14 points in the fourth quarter. They held the Giants to six points in the second half. So kudos to their defense. As good as Geno Smith has been the last couple of weeks, Seattle's defense has stepped up. I think they need a lot more credit. And the fact that they're sitting at the top of the NFC West, when I'm pretty sure not a single soul saw that, that has to speak volumes about the coaching staff and Tyler Lockett going up on the podium with Geno Smith and DK Metcalf making the comments that he did. Isn't it crazy how when everybody buys in, the team is a completely different team? That was a shot at Russell Wilson. I think the more and more, not to change this into a Russell narrative, but I had to because Tyler Lockett made it his business. Someone someone who is a very quiet person, someone who does not speak very much. I think there is becoming truth to the narrative that Russell Wilson may have not been the greatest teammate in the world while he was in Seattle. Again, we'll let that marinate over time because Tyler did say it just a few hours ago. But at the end of the day, the Seahawks are sitting at five and three. And I'm, dude, Denver's looking at six and what is it, three and five to start the year off? Absolutely atrocious. But hey, kudos to Seattle. And I can't believe the Giants fell the way that they did. I thought this would have been, a little, personally, I thought this would have been a little bit more competitive. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm going to kind of keep this short. But I mean, when it comes to the Giants, you know, to me, it's just whether or not that Daniel Jones can be effective. And I thought, you know, Seattle did a great job and be able to contain him. And not only that, when you're able to hold Saquon to the yards that he did, I mean, that's a really good effort from the Seattle defense. And it was like I was saying, I think they're in a very good space here to be able to take advantage of some opportunities and some of the matchups that they have in the next two weeks. There's a very real chance that they could be seven and three after week 10. So, and I would have never expected that going into the season. I thought the Rams would have been at the top of the NFC West. I thought the 49ers would have been right behind them. I thought Seattle would be in last place. But, I mean, they really kind of turned the whole division on their head. And when it comes to the Giants, I mean, there's no receivers, bro. We got to talk about that too. No receivers. It is bad. It is horrendous over there. Yeah. I mean, Darius Slayton, I think, is your number one option. Galladay's not there. You trade away Tony. Obviously, Slayton's been in and out the lineup. Sterling Shep Shepard. ACL. Got, like, it, it's, it's a, it's a, Wendell Robinson it, is number two, and he's a receiver it, out of Kentucky. He's it, a that, rookie. That was the reason why that I had to pick Seattle in that one, just because if they were able to contain Saquon, Daniel Jones is not going to be able to carry that offense because they not just don't have the requisite around. pieces at the receiver yep. position. Their defense kept them in it, though, but that fourth quarter, man, didn't happen. Couldn't do it. Yeah, yep, so. exactly. So we're going to keep it in the NFC West because obviously the next game is the Niners and the Rams. This game started off a whole lot better than what it ended. Obviously, San Fran was down 10 to 14 at half, but the 49ers end up pulling away in the second half, scoring 21 unanswered points, leaving and skunking the LA Rams at home to zero points in the second half. So Kyle, I'm going to kick this one your way. 
The 49ers bounce back. The Rams continue to fall, even though there's a bye. Is there a chance for the Rams to salvage their season, or did the 49ers bounce back at just the right time? Well, I answer the Rams part first. When it comes to the Rams, I'm very shaky when it comes to them for the rest of the year, just because, Kev, let's be honest. This is not the same team from last year. This team looks exactly like the antithesis of this Super Bowl team that they had just a year ago. And I had decent expectations when it came to the Rams this year. I think if I remember correctly, Kev, we had them going to the Super Bowl. Those, that was our yes, pick to come did. out of the a- NFC. And, you know, we're eight weeks into the season. I don't think it's going to happen. Because, let's face it, when we look at the, the landscape of the NFC West right now, I mean, Seattle's at the top, which is just absolutely insane. I don't think anybody expected that eight weeks into the season. And then everybody else is kind of middle of the pack. The same kind of goes with the Rams here. I mean, the Cardinals and the Rams and the 49ers all kind of have like a very similar record with them maybe being separated by like one or two wins at the most. But with the Rams, they just can't get anything consistently on the offensive side of the ball. And it's very simple, Kev. They can't protect Stafford. He's one of the most sacked quarterbacks in the league. And not only that, you know, it, it doesn't even just come to just sack solely. Like all the defense needs to get against the Rams is just bring the pressure. Bring the pressure, bring the hurries, and you're going to force Matt Stafford to either throw the ball away or he has to throw a pass that could be like a 50-50 ball that could either get picked off or it could get very nearly intercepted. And that's really where the issues have lied with the Rams, not only that, they can't run the ball effectively because their offensive line can't open up run lanes for their run game. So when it comes to their offense, they're in real trouble. They kind of have a very similar issue when it comes to the Bucs just because the, the Buccaneers can't protect Tom. They can't open up run lanes for Leonard Fournette. You could pretty much apply the same standard or the same issues to the Rams here because there's a lot of similarities between both the Rams offense and the Bucs offense. And you could tell that the Rams defense they have to play on their heels just because more than likely the Rams are going to have to either punt it and they had, they could work with a limited field just because the team that they're going up against, their offense has a limited field to work with. So they they have decent opportunities to score. And I think by and large, I think the way that the offense is playing, I think it's having a domino effect because I just don't think that the defense has the confidence to go out there every single drive to try to stop the opposing offense because they know that the Rams offense with Matt Stafford leading the way can't get it done. So the Rams are in real trouble. Now let's kick it to the 49ers. Uh, the 49ers needed this win. Um, the last two weeks for them had been very shaky. Uh, they lost to the Falcons and then they had a very shaky performance. Kev, who did the 49ers play last week? I'm just drawing a blank in my head right now. The 49ers last week played the... Hold on. I just had it and I closed it by accident. The 49ers just played the Chiefs last week. And they got smoked. They lost by three touchdowns. Absolutely smoked. I mean, what was it? 44 to 23? Yep. And in the second half, they got absolutely obliterated, right? Oh, yeah. So they definitely needed a step back. Or they definitely needed a game to kind of get back into rhythm. And I really do think that that happened. Because when I look at Christian McCaffrey, man, he was all over the field today. The Rams had no answer for him because he threw for a touchdown, he ran for a touchdown, and he had a touchdown reception on top of it. Kevin, I think that's the first time you were telling me this before we started recording. That's the first player to do that since LaDainian Tomlinson back probably in the 2000s, correct? 2005. So it definitely seems like Christian's definitely got a little bit more comfortable into the 
the flow of the game or the flow of the offense. And mind you, he's only been there for two weeks. So he's probably still behind the eight ball when it comes to their playbook. But the fact that he was integrated that well into the playbook and the game plan uh, against the Rams, that's definitely a good sign for the 49ers. Um, uh, other than that, I thought their defense was stifling. They were able to essentially, like you said, Kev, shut out the Rams in the second half. And, you know, you combine that with what the 49ers were able to do in the second half. I mean, it pretty much pitched a perfect second half as far as I see it. The offense scored 21 points. They were able to bring effective pass rushes against Matt Stafford. That's a winning formula for them. I would say, though, that the 49ers definitely have some catching up to do. Because, like I said, the Seahawks are still a couple games ahead of them. And the 49ers are sitting at a 4-4 and record, which is a little bit disappointing for them about halfway through the season. I think that they should be at least like a 5-3 and record or a 6-2 and record. But... They still have second. They still have the second half of the season to be able to pull something off and get on a consistent winning streak here. But I think they're in a good position right now. They just have to be able to maintain it and just build off the win against the Rams. But overall, I think the 49ers are definitely in more of an advantageous situation to win football games. But I think the Rams, Rams are in trouble. They got to show me something over the next couple of weeks, or they're potentially going to miss the playoffs. I think the Rams are chalked, bro. There's not really much I can say about it. Obviously, at the end of the day, I know that they had the lead at half, but it just... I'm looking at this sheet, and I'm saying, once again, it seems to be a reoccurring thing with with high-powered offenses and uh, heavy pass schemes. They don't run the football well. They have no protection. It's like I'm repeating myself with a lot of these games because it's the same issue with teams that had success last season and in previous years. They had 56 yards on the ground. You were up at half. Why did you run it? Why did you abandon the run game? Why was this not utilized more to keep the ball away from San Francisco? And of course, to just be able to create play action for Cooper Cup and your receivers. I look at the 49ers and once again, for those of you that say I'm crazy, Jimmy had a great game. 21 of 25 with a passer rating of 132, two touchdowns, no interceptions, and he was sacked three times. Christian McCaffrey goes off for 94 yards and throws a damn touchdown. Like, what are we talking about right now? We all know that the 49ers have the team chemistry, coaching, and the players to go out and win a Super Bowl. But they have these weeks where they just look on and off. And some recently have just been absolutely off. They bounce back against a division rival in the Rams who just look beyond lost, especially being skunked in the second half. And then we're talking about the 49ers. And it's like, now they've, ret- it's like they woke up. It's like they took a nap and they legitimately were like, oh yeah, we're, we're pretty damn good. Like this needs to be a reoccurring thing. This needs to be a consistency. They didn't even have Debo and they won by two scores. Two scores. Yeah, I was doing the math. I was like, technically three scores, but I just, I can't understand the hate. I can't understand the inconsistencies. I'm not comprehending where there's a discrepancy that the 49ers are bad. They need to solidify this and take this win and like put pictures of the scoreboard on, on inside the locker rooms. They need to do something because there's no reason this team needs to be struggling as much as they have been. Thankfully, they were able to bounce back at the right time. And for the record's sake, Jimmy Garoppolo moves on to 8-0 and against Sean McVay and the, freaking, and the freaking Rams. So just add that to Jimmy's resume that people continue to tell me he's a bad quarterback because at the end of the day, you don't beat one of the better teams over the course of the last couple of seasons as often as you do. And then you don't beat the defending Super Bowl champions twice in the next season. So 
just you know, pe- letting people know Jimmy's not bad. It's just genuinely a lot of exter- uh, external circumstances. But that game was incredible. I'll let that one kind of pass over because I know we got plenty of other things to talk about. So Kyle, I know we got another one coming up next. Yeah, Kev, this was probably one of the more compelling games that we saw the entire weekend. And Kev, I know you got basically kind of like a uh, you got you watched this game live, if I remember correctly. The Falcons much, yeah. and the Panthers. Honestly, going into this week, there's no way in hell that Kevin and I would have done any sort of pregame preview when it came to the Falcons and the Panthers, simply just because, well, the NFC South is kind of a tire fire this year. And this game actually would have dictated like who would have been at the top of the NFC South, which would have been absolutely crazy. But just to dive into the game real quick, the Falcons win an absolute shootout of a game winning by the score of 37 to 34. They won in overtime. This was really just a back and forth game. I mean, Kev, this was probably one of the most exciting fourth quarters we've seen the entire season so far with almost 35 points respectively being scored by both teams in that quarter alone, which is just absolutely insane as far as I see it. So the Falcons move to a four and four record. They actually hold first place in the NFC South. I can't believe I'm actually saying that eight weeks into the season. But Kev, I'm going to kick this one to you. What are your takeaways from one of the best games that we saw in week eight with the Falcons beating the Panthers in overtime? Well, I think that this shows that both teams are tired of settling for mediocrity. I think this shows that both coaching staffs are willing to pretty much do anything at this point to get a win. I think that both quarterbacks played exceptionally well, mainly for me, Marcus Mariota, showing that he still has the capabilities to be a pure pocket quarterback and making some throws that people didn't even think he could anymore. He goes for 253 yards and three touchdowns. He did have two interceptions. But he was able to overcome that, of course, of course, with also his mobility, be able to put 43 yards on the ground. And then Atlanta's, Atlanta's attack on the ground, man. I mean, they had 167 yards rushing. It, it was literally, it looked to be unstoppable. But then you go and you look at the opposite side for Carolina. Both running attacks were incredible because Carolina had 169 yards. So this was definitely a game with no defense. Both teams played exceptionally well on the offensive side, but both defenses need to take into account We need to fix this if we're going to be competitive for the rest of the year. For me, it's a little weird for Carolina to be continuing to be this competitive, especially when people are favoring them to be chasing the number one overall pick. They're basically selling the entire team in terms of uh, getting rid of personnel with Robbie Anderson. They're looking to get Burns out of there. CMC leaves. Obviously, they've gone with P.J. Walker over Baker Mayfield. So it seems like they're in the motions to kind of just tank, so to speak. But you got to give PJ his flowers, arguably the throw of the game to uh, DJ Moore to send this game into overtime, which was just absolutely ridiculous. And DJ Moore goes and screws that up. And uh, this is what I mean when players got to be mature, players got to be able to keep themselves composed. So PJ Walker throws this incredible touchdown to tie the game at 34 34. And then DJ Moore, after catching it, immediately takes his helmet off while still in the field of play to celebrate, jump on the freaking the, the front row of the stands, and just go absolutely crazy. I understand the emotions are high. You're celebrating with your teammates. You just scored to put yourself in overtime, thinking that, well, I just scored, and our kicker's going to get this extra point. Extra points are no longer at basically the, the uh, what did they used to be at, Kyle? The five-yard line, the 10-yard line, or whatever the hell they were? They used to be at the two-yard line. They used to be at the, so basically at the college. It used to be right there at the goal line. Now we're back in it, and now it's an average of 33 yards or 35 yards to kick an extra point, which we all know is not a guarantee. And that 15-yard penalty for the excessive celebration 
ends up getting them 15 yards back and they miss the 48 or 47 yard extra point attempt and the game goes to overtime. DJ Moore needs to have a lot more poise and needs to understand he needs to keep his emotions in check. Earlier in the game when he had a drop, he threw his helmet on the sideline. So I, you can tell he's been frustrated and emotionally distraught pretty much the entire game. I mean, I would be too with a crappy team like this. But again, they still found a way to, to, to compete in overtime, but they missed the field goal to win in overtime, giving Atlanta the ball back. Obviously, Marcus leads them down the field. Uh, what is it? Ku? Ko? I always forget the, the, the kicker's I, I freaking... I think it's Ko. I think it's Ko. It's Ko? Ku or Ko. It's, it's one, one or the other. The Atlanta kicker wins them the game in overtime with a score of, again, 37-34. to But that, over, that fourth quarter was literally back and forth. I mean, Carolina scored 21 points in the fourth. Atlanta scored 13. Kyle already said it. It was the battle of offenses. But DJ Moore is the complete sole reason why the Panthers didn't win this game. And at the end of the day... If you're going to be the focal point of an offense, you're going to be the person complaining you're not getting the ball, you got to be a leader. you got to lead by example. You can't go doing things like that no matter how much the emotions are at an all-time high. Atlanta moves on to 3-1 and one at home, and they are now leading the division of the NFC South. I'm going to slightly disagree with you saying that DJ Moore lost them this game. I understand that you could look at that one specific instance where he definitely screwed up. I'm not denying that. Like That's a mental mistake. At the worst time imaginable. But Kev, let's be honest. Before this game went into overtime, the Panthers gave up 34 points. Defensively, they were a no-show today. And I understand that DJ Moore definitely screwed up. But we also have to look at the fact that Atlanta kind of gave it to the Panthers defense. And that was after the Panthers had one of the best defensive performances I've seen all year where they held Tampa to three points. Granted, I know Tampa has their issues. But... How do you go from allowing three points against Tampa to allowing 37 by the end of it against the Falcons just a week True. later? So, you know, don't get me wrong. You know, DJ Moore made a mistake. Phenomenal play, though. I mean, it's a perfect pass from P.J. Walker. And honestly, to me, that was probably the best throw I've seen the entire season. I mean, he, he cocked back and just let that thing fly. And it was a perfect pass because there was if that ball was a yard shorter it's either getting knocked down or it's getting picked off like it was a perfect pass and then for dj moore to throw his helmet off and just go absolutely buck wild after that can't be doing that i mean it's very simple and i wouldn't be surprised that you know coaches are going to bring that up either right after the game you know after the play just took place and then probably tomorrow in film session so you know there's going to be a lot of emphasis on that play by uh, DJ Moore, it was kind of a double-edged sword. Got the touchdown, but at what cost? So overall, you know, just to kind of dive into the game a little bit, this was a fantastic game, Kev. Like you said, this was a back-and-forth affair in the fourth quarter, and that's really what I'm going to focus on here. I mean, it got to a point where, okay, Atlanta scores, Carolina would answer back. Carolina would score, Atlanta would answer back. It was just back and forth, and I never really expected this type of game to take place with two what I would consider subpar teams to begin with, with the Falcons and the Panthers, just because, well, the Panthers are basically going full-out tank just because they've been trading away everybody, and I think they're just trying to improve their draft position at this point. But with efforts like this, um, maybe it had to kind of put that to rest a little bit just because they were really going back and forth against the Falcons, and they had a very good chance to win this game. But... The mistake by DJ Moore, not being able to capitalize on some opportunities in overtime. You know, 
The Panthers are sitting at a two and six record now because of some of just stupid mistakes. And then when you look at the Falcons, just to kind of look at them, I understand they're sitting at a four and four record, but I have to be honest with you. I know that this offense can produce, they have a great run game, but I don't know how effective they're going to be towards the second half of the year because, you know, they are the number one team in the NFC South, but I still got to look to Tampa. Can they be able to win that home game against Tampa when they play against each other for the second time this year? That, to me, is going to be a real measuring stick. I know Tampa's gone through their issues this year. Tom Brady doesn't look the same. And if the Falcons can win that game, I mean, that would be absolutely critical for them when it comes to potentially winning the NFC South this year. But to me, the Falcons are a very shaky team. They're coming off of a game last week where Joe Burrow absolutely torched them for, I believe, 480 yards passing, and he had 500 total yards on top of it just because of some of the rushing yards he got. I think he got like 20, 25. So, you know, when I look at this Falcons defense, they are very suspect. They gave up 34 points to P.J. Walker and the Panthers. And that was after they gave up 30-plus to the Bengals the week before. So, this defense is suspect. And I think moving forward, if the Falcons were to falter, it's probably going to be because of their defense. I just don't think that they have the requisite pieces to be able to maintain that number one spot in the NFC South. But I will give them credit. They battled back in this game against the Panthers, and they were able to maintain as far as going toe-to-toe with the Panthers in this game because the Panthers are scoring like that. you you got to match it, and they were able to do it. But overall... A great game, probably one of the best games that we've seen all year. And who would have thought it would have came in a quarterback battle between Marcus Mariota and P.J. Walker? I would have never imagined that going into this week. But hats off to both teams. They both played like winners as far as I'm concerned. Unfortunately, one team had to lose. But overall, just a fantastic game um, that took place on Sunday. Great game. And, you know, obviously, I know we're, we're going through this pretty quick. We just have a whole lot of content to go through. Obviously, we're trying to not necessarily cut our analysis down, but we know that Kyle and I tend to get into tangents a little bit, and that kind of deviates away from what we're trying to do and be critical of some of these teams, depending on the segment, of course. You know, we'll yeah. give as much information as we can with some jokes here and again, but trying to be as concise as humanly possible. Plus, started recording a little late. I got home late. Kyle got home late. So we're just going to keep moving this along. And this next game was Another entertaining game, despite what we had originally anticipated. Both of us picking Minnesota to win, but I did not expect this to legitimately come down as close as it did. So, Kyle, what do we got going on? Yeah, I mean, you pretty much laid it out as exactly as I would. Um, the Vikings improved to 6-1 on the year. Uh, they beat the Cardinals by the score of 34-26. to uh, When I look at the Vikings specifically here, I thought Kirk Cousins was effective. They got good contributions in the ground game from Dalvin Cook, uh, Alex Madison. I mean, overall, this was a pretty well-rounded performance from the Vikings. I mean, you're sitting at the number one spot in the NFC North eight weeks into the season, and they are they are widening their lead in that division at this point. It is pretty much a runaway when it comes to the Vikings this year in the NFC North, and that's where, where I'm going to go with this, Kev. So to get this one to you, with the Vikings sitting at a 6-1 record after beating the Cardinals 34-26 to in Week 8, are the Vikings a legitimate contender in the NFC? 
I mean, I, I, I have to agree that they are. I think that the most vulnerable port, part of their team would have to be their defense because there are times in which their offense puts them ahead by a lot, and then when the offense goes cold like some offenses do, the defense isn't necessarily able to keep them in the game. Sometimes they allow some points. Sometimes they allow big chunk plays. So again, it looks to be a little inconsistent at times, but again, at the end of the day, a dub is a dub, whether it's by a point or by 50. So Kudos to the Vikings. Obviously, their schedule over the last couple of weeks has been favorable for the most part. The winning streak starts against Detroit. That was a nail-biter. Then you go in to play the Saints. That was another nail-biter. You play Chicago, another nail-biter. You play the freaking Dolphins. That one was without Tua. Actually, that was Tua's first game back. And that one was a little bit closer than I would have expected it to be because the, the Dolphins ended up clawing back. And then, of course, today's win with Arizona, that was 34 to 26. So each game has literally been probably within one possession or two at most. Um, And I'm looking at this and I'm saying they have the Commanders next week who are on their own three-game win streak. Then after that, they have the Bills, Cowboys, Patriots, and Jets. Each of those teams are competitive, to say the very least. The weakest team on that list probably being the Patriots, only because I'm going off of record. I know they won today, but... This is going to be where the Vikings have to prove it. This is where the Vikings are going to have to show that they are the real deal. Similar to the Giants, their their schedule has been slightly favorable, but you have to win those games. You have to show that you can beat bad teams, and then when the good teams come to town or when you go to their house, you got to be able to be competitive. And uh, we'll see what happens over the next month or so because those are the next five games I just laid out for you. But I have to give credit because the offense is making moves. Dalvin Cook is running the ball. Justin Jefferson is getting targets. They've got an emerging tight end in Irv Smith. Obviously, they have Thielen. Kirk Cousins just literally has to stay away from Sunday night, Monday night, and Thursday night games. So basically what you have to equivalent for is if the Vikings were to go, there's 17 games in the season. 14-0, 14-0, you have to include those three losses being your primetime games because they are, look, Kirk Cousins is legitimately absolutely atrocious on all big stages. It's just statistically proven. He can't do it. So if the Vikings can just win all the other games, then they might very well be competitive. Now, obviously, the playoffs are going to be primetime no matter what. I mean, there are some 3 o'clock games. Sometimes there are some 6 o'clock games. But nevertheless, since it's the playoffs, it's win or go home. So he can't afford to have an off game there. But in terms of the NFC North, I don't see them losing the grip that they have on this. The Packers just lost tonight. Shocker. That's their fourth loss in a row. But anyway, um, if they keep this up, if they can run the ball effectively, if Kevin O'Connell can continue to lead this offense with his mind, I believe that he and Kirk Cousins will do just enough to wrap this division on up over the next six or seven weeks. And I firmly believe that the Minnesota Vikings, if they keep this up, can make a run at an NFC championship berth. That's a bold take, bro. I'm being 100% honest. You're talking about NFC Championship? I said a run at the NFC Championship because... I'm just... Think, like, think, think of this. Think of this. The NFC right. gets two buys. Yep. If they get a buy, that's a minimum of the divisional. Depending on who they play, whether that's somebody that comes out of the NFC South, do you think they can't beat the Falcons? you think they can't beat a struggling Buccaneers team? That's an NFC Championship berth right there with mm-hmm. one game. Yeah, to me, it's whether or not they get one of those buys. And I'm uh, going to tell you right now, who's going to, who's going to compete with them in the NFC outside of the, what the giants, the, the, the Cowboys. Well, first of all, I, the Eagles are still undefeated. Right. That's correctly. one by the game that I'm circling is in a couple of weeks from now. It's going to be that Cowboys the and the Vikings. It's the oh, Cowboys, the Cowboys and the Vikings. Because if the Cowboys win that game, that's going to really put the Vikings in a tailspin because 
if they were to get into a situation where both teams respectively have the same record at the end of the year, but the Cowboys have it, and let's just say the Cowboys finish with the second best record, which would be absolutely insane at the end of the season, they would get the bye. Yeah. So, oh, wait, wait. Would they not? Because they would oh, get a wild card. Oh, there's seven teams this year. They would get a wild card spot because the Eagles would own the division. So I had to I retract that. So I thought it was actually based on overall record, but I don't think it's actually oh, the case. Oh, that's right. Here. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait, isn't there only one bye now with their seven teams in the playoffs? There is one. There is one bye. Right. So, yeah, so Philly's so, got to hold on yeah, to it. So, so basically, yeah. guys, disregard things. Like, see, Kyle and I are tired. It's been a long weekend. You know what I'm saying? We little. Yeah. We I'm, 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 just I'm, glad we, I'm glad we caught that. I'm glad we caught yeah, that. Yeah, that would have been pretty bad. But, okay. To kind of get back on track here. When it comes to the Vikings overall, this is a legitimate team to consider for the rest of the year. Now, do I think that they're the best team in the NFC? No. I think that they're probably top two, top three. And I would say it's arguably top two. Because the way that I see it, I think that the Cowboys could potentially be a better team. Even though that... The Vikings, I believe, have a better record. So I like where the Vikings are going, though. And Kev, like you laid out, uh, they have some favorable matchups, uh, especially against the Commanders this, I guess you would say, week nine. And then after that, they have a little bit of a tough stretch against the Bills and the Cowboys. Um, After that, they got the Patriots and the Jets. I think those are winnable games for them. But I think depending on how those Bills and Cowboys games go, those are going to be very tough matchups for them. If they could be able to split those two games, I think that's best case scenario for them. Because after that, I think, you know, they'll have a difficult time playing the Giants at the end of the year. I don't know what's going to happen in the Packers game. We'll see what happens just because it is going to be a divisional game. And granted, that's not going to take place until January. So both these teams could look a lot differently when we get to that part of the season. But I have to say, you know, we did pick the Vikings to be uh, representatives of the NFC North this season, and it has played out that way. Not to give ourselves a pat on the back here, but they've just been a very balanced team so far. And granted, I wouldn't say that they're winning their games in like a. Dr- they're not winning these games where they're blowing out the other teams and they're winning by two or three touchdowns, but they're winning these one possession games when compared to last year, they were losing them. So there were a lot of one-position games that they had the last couple of years where they fell on the L column instead of the W column. This year, they've really been able to not make those crucial mistakes late in games that would put them behind the eight ball compared to where they were last year. And they've taken advantage of this scenario this year. And they're in a really good position here. It's just when it comes to some of the other teams in the NFC, I got to contend with the Eagles. I got to contend with the Cowboys. I know the Giants just lost to the Seahawks this past weekend, but the Giants do not sleep on them. The Seahawks are right there behind the Vikings as far as I'm concerned. So there are some decent teams in play here, and I'm not even factoring in teams like uh, the Bucks that can make a turnaround or the 49ers that can make a turnaround. So the, the Vikings are definitely going to have to contend with some really solid teams here in the NFC. Granted, they have a 6-1 and record, and I'm not going to slight them for that, but... Like you said, Kev, they're going to have some tests in the next couple of weeks once you get past the Commanders game. And if they could be able to win those matchups or at least split them, I think that's best case scenario for them. But overall, they've been a very solid team this year. They've been consistently in our top five when it comes to our power rankings this year. So they've been able to maintain that. Got to give them credit for that. But 
it's like you said, Kev, can they perform in primetime games? Because when they get to the playoffs, that's what it's going to be. And history shows that Kirk Cousins has not been able to, to do that. So I'm still a little bit, I guess I'm a little bit iffy with the Vikings. But overall, for this season so far, they've been solid. And I do think that if they can maintain their winning ways, they can be a contender in the NFC. I can't say otherwise right now because they're winning football games. So good on the Vikings. Uh, did a nice job against the Cardinals this past weekend, and we'll see whether or not that they can continue it uh, going into the next couple of weeks. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I got to make one closing point. DeAndre Hopkins is him. That man is oh. an animal. The yeah, one-handed but... catch in the end zone. Six weeks Feel off, me. don't make a difference. That man don't care if he had one leg, bro. Filthy. Filthy. <laughs> he's, he's, he's disgusting. And that was 13 good, targets, 12 catches. That was good coverage, too, on that play. Hit myself in the face with the mic. <laughs> okay. Take a right. minute. Take a, take a minute. Now reset, reset. Um, yeah. So, like I said, just wanted to give kudos to, to, to D-Hop because holy shit. <laughs> that oh, man cooked. went off. He cooked. So, they didn't lose because of him. So, no. So, as as their defense got torched. They gave up 34 points in the road. You're not going to win football games that way, but... No, I think, you know, I thought overall it was a fun game to watch. I thought both yeah. teams were competitive. Uh, Kyler made some mistakes, though. I believe he yeah, got picked those off two interceptions in were critical. Yeah. Like, they, they, so, they was, those were huge. But it's the Cardinals. Didn't have a lot of expectation coming for them into the season. It didn't help that D-Hop was going to miss the first six weeks. But, you know, Vikings are rolling, bro. I got to give them credit for that. So they've been on a roll. We'll see whether or not that they can continue it. Team that's not on the roll right now. Or the Las Vegas Raiders. Raiders had a... There's no other way to say this. They had an abysmal performance against the New Orleans Saints. They got skunked. They lost by the score of 24 to nothing. And they were in no way, shape, or form competitive in this game from the first quarter to the fourth quarter. And it got so bad that they had to put Jared Sidham in. So, really kind of goes to show how bad of a day the Raiders had just because Derek Carr had 100 yards passing. Had an interception. And... When I look at their rushing totals, they're abysmal. They ran for under 40 yards rushing. So give credit to the Saints. The Saints showed up. They played pretty much a flawless game as far as I'm concerned when it comes to their defensive performance. And then putting up 24 points against the Raiders is what I would consider a commendable effort on their part. But we got to focus on the Raiders here. Kev, to get this one to you, what do you make of the Raiders having just an outright abysmal performance against the Saints, getting shut out 24 to nothing? And do you think that the Raiders can turn this around for the foreseeable future? As much as I would like to say yes because of the talent that they have and how much faith I have that when Darren Waller gets back, this team will go back to being at least competitive, I can't say yes. Josh McDaniels has got to go. I know that we've been saying the same thing for Nathaniel Hackett, but it just shows when you're an offensive-minded person, an offensive-minded coach, 
You have the weapons around you. You have the quarterback from a consistent standpoint that has been good in his career. You don't have a bum. You don't have a career backup. You don't have an injury replacement. You have a franchise quarterback in Derek Carr, and you're putting up zero points. It's unacceptable. It's unheard of. And for him to only have 100 yards on 26 pass attempts and pretty much the entirety of a game, you're getting out-dueled by Andy. You're getting out-dueled by Andy Dalton. He had eight incompletions today. You're sitting there and you're looking at 38 yards rushing. The Saints had 136. They almost eclipsed them by over 100 yards. Alvin Kamara had like 42 points in fantasy today. He had 96 yards receiving. He had 62 yards on the ground and three touchdowns. I mean, that man looked like the Alvin Kamara from two, three years ago. The Saints just fired on all cylinders. The defense locked up. The offense was moving. But man, you have Devontae freaking Adams. What in the hell are you doing to not be able to leverage and get that man the ball? How is it he had five targets for one catch? How? How do you trade basically the entire world for Devontae Adams and you can't even get this man incorporated into the offense? Their leading receiver was Mac Hollins, which is no slate at all because Kyle and I have both said on a multitude of episodes that he is better than what he has gotten credit for. But when Foster Morneau is your next leading target, how and what? Hunter Renfro, for God's sakes, had freaking two targets. What is Josh doing? I feel like the comparison would be, and I, I, this is going to be offensive as hell, and I don't really care. Josh McDaniels is the Frank Reich of this team. You have a bunch of weapons that you don't want to leverage. You're inconsistent when you are doing well. And on the defensive side of the ball, while our defense is, is sadly, I can't even argue, top 10, but this isn't about my team. The, the Raiders weren't exactly able to stop a nosebleed today. So overall... They failed on all three phases. They were not able to capitalize. They weren't able to score. And of course, when you go and you put up your backup quarterback because you don't want to get your franchise hurt, that just goes to show this team had no fight left in them. They were embarrassed. And I would not be surprised if Josh McDaniels is 100% fired after this year because of a performance like this. This is what gets you fired. This is why you lose opportunities. And the Raiders have no excuse. They have a star-studded offense. They have no reason to lose games as much as they did. And if I'm not mistaken, according to the QB hits by the Saints, they hit their quarterbacks between the two, Stidham and Carr, nine times, and they were pressured even more. So if we're going to look at a culprit for the for why they lost this game, the offensive line is at the front. And of course, at the end of the day, the defense was right after not being able to stop New Orleans. The Saints crushed them. The Raiders look lost. Season's probably chalked for them, man. Season's over. Yeah, I mean, we're eight weeks into the season. And you're sitting at a two and five record. I mean, for God's sakes, they have a worse record than the Broncos, and the Broncos have looked awful this year. And Kevin, I'm going to be honest with you. I was still of the mindset that there was a glimmer of hope with the Raiders being able to turn around their season, just because I thought that they had the requisite pieces offensively to be able to, you know, be able to score points and be able to win some football games. Their offensive line, they're not doing it, bro. They're failing this team. Like you said, the amount of pressures and the amount of quarterback hits and the amount of sacks that they're giving up is a direct reason why this offense is going nowhere. And not only that, to make things worse, you got Josh Jacobs back there, one of the most underrated running backs in the league. And when they're not opening up run lanes for him, this offense is just stagnant. And that's exactly what we saw against the Saints. To me, Kev, I'm not going to go as far to say that Josh McDaniels should be fired after this season. 
Um, it's a little bit too premature as far as I'm concerned. But if the Raiders keep losing games, I'm not saying in a manner like this, but if they just continue on a downward slide for the rest of the year and they finish somewhere around 4-13 and 13 or 5-12, and 12, I definitely think that Josh McDaniels' uh, seat's going to get a little bit warm. I don't know if it's going to be red hot. It could be. But, man, I think when it comes to the Raiders brass in their front office, they were expecting a lot better of a performance from this team eight weeks into the season, and they just frankly haven't gotten it. And there have been some games they've been relatively close in. It's just some late-game turnovers, the fact that they get penalties on a regular basis, and the fact that they can't convert on third downs. And that's just a couple of issues off the top of my head. It's the reason why they're sitting at a 2-5 and record, and you know to get skunked by Andy Dalton and the crew, I mean, that is just... That's a bad look. And, you know, you give up the performance that Alvin Kamara had. I mean, Alvin Kamara was on a mission in that game. Like you said, Kev, I mean, the guy got over 40 points in fantasy. Nobody could stop him on the Raiders defense in any way, shape, or form. And when it comes to the Raiders, I think this is really just going to be a question of, you know, what position are they going to get in the draft? Because, I mean, let's face it, you know, when it comes to the AFC West, they got to contend with the Chargers and they got to contend with the Chiefs. They don't really consider the Broncos a threat because the Broncos are led by Russell Wilson and Russell Wilson is just one of the more weirder characters this year. And I don't really think he puts them in a winning position, but I don't think they're going to be able to really be competitive in their own division just because I think the Chargers and the Chiefs are ahead above them. And when it comes to the rest of their schedule, I'm just not really confident with them to be able to turn this thing around. I mean, they have some favorable matchups here. They got the Jaguars next week. They got the Colts the week after that. They even have the Broncos the week after that. But then after that, you know, they got to play the Seahawks, and that's not going to be an easy game. Going up against the Chargers, that's not going to be an easy game. We'll see what happens in the Rams game, just simply because the Rams have been inconsistent this year. The Patriots are not going to be an easy out. So they've got... You know, a pretty decent stretch for the next two weeks. And then they're on a four-week stretch where they're going to be tested once again. And then they got to finish out the year playing the 49ers and the Chiefs. Which, to me, I think those are going to be L's right off the bat. So, you're already sitting at a 2-5 and five record. There's going to be some automatic losses here. If, they're, if they lose some of these winnable games in the foreseeable future, they're done as far as I'm concerned for this season. And I, it's a major disappointment as far as I'm concerned. I thought the Raiders would have been at least a more competitive team this year, but they just can't get it done, bro. There's no other way to say it. They have the pieces offensively to do it. They have some decent players on the defensive side of the ball, but they just can't do it consistently. And until I see some sort of spark from this team, I just don't think they're going to be able to make the playoffs at this point. They're they're a team that's really disappointed me as far as I see it. It, it kind of sucks because Kyle said it. We predicted them to be bottom tier of the division. You know, obviously, there's only four teams. We expected them but, to be third or fourth, but competitive, none the least. Exactly. We, that's what we, that's what I was alluding to. It's just they they don't they can't. They're just not doing it. It's like how it's, it's like so puzzling, man. They were so good last year. They didn't really lose anything other than Ngakwe and what. Not that that that's it. Maybe some other defensive players that we don't know about because we're not you know like as into the Raiders as we would be some other teams. But 
This is almost the exact same team from last season. And they added Devontae Adams. There was no reason for this bad of a decline. And I've said it a multitude of times. For those of you that are spoiled in this sport, you think that because there's a big-name player, that means automatically that puts you in the upper echelon. This is a team sport. You can't just rely on one individual player to carry you to the promised land. And I think that's what Aaron Rodgers is going through without him. The Raiders have him, and they suck. Like, people are basing everything on an organization because of one player. Last I checked, receivers can't get the ball without the quarterback. The quarterback can't throw the ball without protection. And you can't protect the quarterback without the offensive line. It's like, it's literally this, this tiny little circle that people just keep forgetting that if it doesn't flow, it won't work. So well, it's, I just, I can't understand it. I, to me, it's very simple. It's really the ineffectiveness of the offense. And you can blame that on a few factors. Derek Carr being one of them, but I don't think he's the primary reason why that they're losing games. I think it's simply just because their offensive line cannot open up run lanes for Josh Jacobs. People need to stop slighting on Josh Jacobs. He's a nice he, running back. Like two I know three he, I weeks know, ago, he had over a hundred yards in each game. He was mowing people I, down. I know. Last week. I know he's injury prone, and that's it's just been a consistent theme with him. But when he's out there on the field, he's been able to produce when given the right opportunities. Correct. But they just can't convert on third down consistently. You know, they're put in situations where they're dealing with third or five or more. If it's like third and two, third and three, those are manageable. It opens up the playbook. But when it comes to third and five, third and ten, you got to be able to convert on those. It's pretty one-dimensional. You're going to be passing the ball most of the time. And not only that, you know, with the amount of pressures that they give up to Derek Carr, it's very simple. It's very simple why the offense is continuing to sputter. And not only that, it leads to what I would say a deflation of the defense. The defense knows the offense can't put up points consistently. The defense is put in position where they may have to work with a shorter field to, to defend against an opposing offense. And then they're at least giving up a field goal, if not a touchdown in the process. And then the Raiders got to play a catch up the entire time. So I, for me personally, I, when I look back to the Raiders, I think everything kind of hinged on that Chiefs game. That season could have gone it just, one or two ways had they won that Chiefs game because that would have been a huge win for them. To go on the road into Harrowhead to get a dub, that would have been phenomenal. They lost that game by one point. I think the score was 30-29, to 29, if I remember correctly. Yep, and all of their games this season have been competitive. Single-digit losses. Week 1, 24-19. Exactly. Week 1, 24-19. Week 2, 29-23. Week 3, 24-22. Broncos, they got a W. They win by 10. Chiefs lose by one point, thirty to twenty nine. Texans that again, they beat a bad team. They win thirty eight twenty. This week was their only loss of double digit points. But it's like Kyle said, you have one of those games where you lose by one point. You you, you play a bad team for confidence in Houston and and you score a lot. But let me make something clear for those Josh Jacob haters. In the last three weeks, he's had over four hundred and fifty yards. He had over one hundred and fifty against the Chiefs. He had 140 against the freaking Texans, and he had over 140 against the Broncos. On his shoulders, over 450 yards. So let's put some respect on the former Alabama running back. When given the right opportunities, he can run the damn thing. If the offensive line doesn't produce, this is what happens. Kyle and I have said this like a broken record, and it's actually getting me frustrated that people are trying to make arguments about players and teams being bad. 
You do not understand, if you have never played this game, how pivotal the five people in front of the quarterback are. You have seen it for a multitude of teams this season that are struggling that normally do not. And it is because the offensive line is not doing well. The Colts have one of the worst, if not the worst, offensive lines in football. They were a potential playoff team. You have the freaking Buccaneers, former Super Bowl champions just a few years ago with the greatest quarterback of all time in Tom Brady. They're struggling. The defending Super Bowl champs in the Rams, struggling. Three teams right there of over 500 win percentage record. They can't fucking win a game. And why is that, Kyle? Because the offensive line sucks. Let us change the narrative of offensive linemen not getting enough credit in this league. You lose if the line up front is, if the, if, if the game, if the trench, wow. You lose up front if the battle in the trenches is lost. You, you lose the game by a mile. It's not close. And it shows in volume against good teams. I got to ask you something, Kev. You know how the saying has always been defense wins champions, uh, championships? Oh, absolutely. Could you apply that same standard to having an offensive line? Absolutely. Because, because to me, I understand that a defense can be able to, you know, limit the, the other team. So like, you know, three, six, ten points. And the offense just has to do enough to get by. But as far as I see it, the team doesn't have an offensive line. They're going nowhere. I don't care what sort of defense that you have. If the defense is out there consistently and the team is losing the time of possession, guess what? Those guys on the defense get tired. And guess what? They're going to give up points in the process because of that. And to me, like you were just laying out, when it comes to the teams that have been really like the best teams in recent memory within like the last five years or so, the Packers, the Bucks, I'll even throw the Raiders in there because the Raiders made the playoffs last year. All of them have offensive line issues and it is leading to just really an inconsistent year by all of those teams respectively. And that's despite the fact that they have good quarterback play. You know, Derek Carr is a decent quarterback. Aaron Rodgers is one of the best quarterbacks of all time. Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback of all time, probably the greatest player ever. And look at what happens when you do not have an offensive line to be able to effectively protect your biggest assets. To me, I, I think we kind of have to start throwing in the possibility of if you don't have an offensive line, you're not going to win anything. You know, I understand that defense wins championships. I know that's a big saying. It's really just kind of cliche at this point. And we're not taking away from it, guys. We're not saying that defenses are not but, important before all of you people in the comments start to say, well, without a defense, how are you supposed to stop the other team? Otherwise, it's always a shootout. You can't get into a shootout if your quarterback's not protected. Sorry. I, I, I mean, to me, I, I think... You, it's kind of funny that Kevin and I have kind of gotten to this point. It's gotten to the point where basically we're getting to the point whether or not we need to consider the offensive line as the most crucial element of the entire football team. Because honestly, I think it's getting to that point. Yeah. And it's like you said, Kev, it's like if you do not win the battle in the trenches, you do not win that battle in the line of scrimmage, you're not going to do shit. Nothing. You're not going to be able to run the ball. You're not going to be able to pass the ball. Not going to happen. You're not going to be able to score points. You're going to have to punt it back to the other team. Or you're gonna get into a situation where you throw some errant passes and they get picked off, or it just leads to overall turnovers. I think people could start making a case that the offensive line may be the most crucial element of the entire football team. Correct. Could be. It, the nope, defensive it, it, it did very well. The argument this season alone has been shown. 
because I think so. everybody everybody loves to have this statistic, right? Oh, well, he was only sacked two times. Oh, well, he was only hit five times. Do people understand when those five people, depending on if you have a tight end, an extra lineman, whatever, right? The average is five minimum because you have the tackles, you have the guards in the center. If you're pressured to the point where you are taken off of your trajectory, you're taken off of your footing, that play is immediately blown up. Because if you're supposed to throw and your read is the left side of the field on a comeback, but the left side of the offensive line collapses and you have to be forced out to your right, the play's dead. It's, it, it's not the same. You have, to, you have to improvise. Exactly. So whether or not that next play is a completion, an interception, a touchdown, a fumble, a sack, a, a penalty... That is all dependent upon how the quarterback adapts to that pressure, but that's not a metric. People don't realize that whether or not Josh Allen flicks 56 yards right side of the field, he was supposed to go left. His first initial hot route was the left side of the field, but nobody pays attention to that. Granted, I'm not somebody that went out there and played football for my whole life. I've never even played official football because I didn't have the opportunity because my high school team didn't have a, a team. But I took such a like to this sport and such a passion I literally was one of those nerdy kids that watched NFL film inside because I, I, I didn't have an opportunity to play the game, and I fell in love. But even I, someone who's never played the game as opposed to my partner who played offensive line throughout high school, can see how important that position is. Good quarterbacks are struggling. Tom Brady, I have to use that leverage. I have to use that example. When the fuck has he ever struggled this bad in his career? The Patriots... Other than having a stout defense for the majority of their of their tenure, because Bill Belichick is the greatest defensive-minded head coach in NFL history, it's not even a debate, they always had offensive linemen to protect him. Mm -hmm. That is why they won, aside from the defense. If you give Tom Brady time, he's going to find somebody that's open. You give any average NFL quarterback time, four, five, six, seven seconds, he's, someone's going to get open. That's why people say DB is one of the hardest positions because if a play lasts that long, you got to follow somebody and be their shadow for upwards of 10 seconds. That's mm -hmm. hard. For 60, 70, 80 plays a game, that's hard as shit. It's not so easy. I just have to close it out with this. If these teams don't turn it around, if these teams aren't able to protect the quarterback, do not be surprised if their seasons continue to plummet. And when the quarterback doesn't do well... They go down early, the running game becomes ineffective, the running backs are basically useless, and you're going to throw the ball 40 to 50 times. Offensive linemen are important, and they need to be given respect. Sorry, okay. that, this is what I'm saying at the beginning of our podcast. This was a rant that I figured was going to end up coming, but at least we saved it for the end. At least the end of the NFL topics. No, I, I think it's fair, though. I, I think when it comes to the offensive linemen, I think it is probably... I think it's one of the most overlooked aspects of a football team. And Kevin, and sometimes we we kind of fall into this trap too. We fall into this trap of, you know, falling in love with the stars just because of what they're able to produce as far as stats are concerned. But you know, when you really look at the total effectiveness of an offensive line, look at the Bucks. The Bucks can't run a lick against anybody. You know why? Cuz they can't open up anything as far as run lanes are concerned. And the defenses that they're going up against know that. They will stack the box eight heavy knowing that, okay, all we got to do, slow them down on first and second down, put them in a position where it's like third and eight or longer, and they have to pass. And then at that point, we'll drop seven back into coverage. We'll have our three or four pass rushers to pin their ears back and 
have at it because they know that, okay, it's a one-dimensional offense. If it's third and five or more, probably going to pass it. Pretty much taking the run game away from them. And that's exactly what's happened with the Bucks. I think that's happened with the Raiders at times because they have been able to run the ball effectively at times with Josh Jacobs. But not with the not with the Bucks, though. The Bucs are dead last in rushing this year. So you know, and also Packer- like the coaching staffs go into games with a specific sheet. That's why you see head coaches with sheets of plays. If you're down by a lot of points, do you realize more than 30%, I'd say, of those plays are probably gone? You can't use them. Nope. You're going to nope. be running additional pass plays over and over. You're going to be having additional looks. And what does that do? That gives defensive coordinators and obviously captains on the defense ability to look back and say, they ran that two plays in a row. Watch out for that in the fourth quarter. Watch out for them when the tight end lines up on this side. They may flip it, but it's going to be the same formation, the same setup, maybe alter a hot route because of what a quarterback sees at the line of scrimmage. But again, when you take away a a sheet of a playbook, you're going to be limited. Once again, people don't understand if the offensive line isn't doing good, that just doesn't affect the play. That affects the head coaches. That affects the defensive coordinators on the other side. Like, dude, offensive line play is... Say seven on seven, bro. Shit, we might as well make a damn short on this because of how much we're talking about it. This is absolutely ludicrous. Some of these damn people on all of social media platforms are saying that these quarterbacks are washed and that they suck and that they're not good. Do they make bad plays? Everybody does. Are they making mistakes? Everybody does. When you look at the masses and the percentages and the statistics, which people love to bring up, when you're being rushed, what do you want them to do? explain it. Like, I want people to tell me. I want People always like to give that example. You don't play football. You're not there. That position's hard. When you suck, you suck. I want you to stand under center while you have four or five 300-pound men chasing you and tell you to throw the ball 56 yards down the field in a post corner. Remember, remember, people forget that it is legalized assault. I mean, that that's what's taking place pretty much every play. And as far as I see it, it's very easy for us to sit back in our chairs and Monday quarterback this thing to death on why this quarterback sucks or why this team sucks. But guess what? We got it really easy compared to the guys that are actually going out in the field, putting their bodies on the line and trying to make the plays work and trying to get a team a win. Because guess what? You know, I, I don't think people would really understand the the physical toll that it has on these players. I don't think people understand it. Okay, my senior year in football, in high school football, I dealt with shin splints the entire season. To put things in perspective, the healthiest I was the entire season was the last game of the year. I went through two and a half to three months of basically playing at an 85% level. Apply that to guys that are in the NFL playing through torn MCLs or... I think a DK Metcalf's perspective. High ankle sprains, patella tendon issues, like, shoulder sprains, elbow issues. Like you see offensive. There's a reason why offensive linemen look like robots because they have knee braces. They're 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 spatted on their ankles. They, they, they have their, the freaking arm braces. At, at the elbow guard. Like all that. Like I mean. There's a reason. They're literally going head to head every single play when they're on the field and they are physically blocking a man of their size and caliber, if not bigger, for five to ten seconds every fucking play. It's kind of hard. Every play. So 
but we've harped on this for long enough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, just to kind of wrap it up, but I think we pretty much hit the nail on the head there. 100%. So, so I mean, with that said, we're going to transition to our last segment of the episode, and it's going to be one NBA-related, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of the worst teams in the NBA that probably get the most press coverage compared to any other team or any other teams, I should say, in the NBA. And that is the Lakers and the Nets. Kev, we do have to mention this. The Lakers won their first game. The La- I was just about to say they won their first game. And they beat Denver, too, which is kind of that's a, That's a good team. That was a great team. So let's look at the landscape here, you guys. The Lakers have a 1-5 record, and so did the Nets. Respectively, both teams are combined to have a 2-10 record. Yet, they are talked about ad nauseum throughout the entire sports media. They just they can't fixate on anything else other than LeBron James and the Brooklyn Nets, which is comprised of Ben Simmons, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, some really big names here. But there's just always the focal point of NBA storylines. And yet, the Nets and the Lakers are respectively some of the worst teams, if not arguably the worst team in each respective conference that they play in. So, Kevin, to kick this one to you, how would you assess the Nets and the Lakers at this point? I mean, how did both teams get here by playing so badly in the first five to six, well, I should say five to ten games of the season? Well, in, in my opinion, this goes to show creating a super team doesn't always work. Both teams were doing just fine without their most recent added piece. The Lakers didn't need Russell Westbrook. They went and go got him. The freaking Brooklyn Nets didn't need Ben Simmons. They went and made a move for him. Some would say both both moves were completely unnecessary. I don't believe that both teams needed those players. Russell is obviously not going to fit on a team with LeBron James, who is a ball-dominant player. Can Bron play off the ball? Absolutely. But for him to be successful, to lead the team, he's going to need the ball in his hands. And what does Russell Westbrook need? The ball in his hands. Doesn't work. Then you go to Brooklyn, and you have someone that can't shoot, and you have someone that has lost within himself, airballing layups at 6'10", mind you. I don't understand how that's even humanly possible, but here we are talking about it anyway. Um, the Nets just look completely out of sorts. You have KD and Kyrie dropping 30-plus points against Dallas the other night, still losing in overtime. You have Ben Simmons fouling out, what, two or three games out of their first six. You have Ben Simmons that I don't even think he scored double digits over the first six games, if I'm not mistaken. Again, I don't have the stat sheet pulled up, but I have seen most of the narratives being single-digit, single-digit, foul-out, foul-out, single... You know what I'm saying? So, like, they're just not performing at a high level. People are making the argument that Steve Nash doesn't know what he's doing, and yet they they brought him back. People are saying that Kyrie is too much of a distraction, but he's out there performing on the court. Then you go to L.A., AD missed the game because he had lower back spasms. LeBron James was completely frustrated that everybody else doesn't look like they know what the hell they're doing. Russell Westbrook is out here shooting on a two-for-one when they were up against the Blazers the other night, just going to show, like, was that necessary? The media is out here trying to trip both teams up and trying to get them in trouble and trying to get them put them against each other in terms of their teammates. Um, you, you just, they're not good teams. And if you were to close your eyes, I hit my mic again. Holy shit, today I'm just off. If you were to close your eyes and someone were to tell you, you have no idea what the records of the NBA are. You just have some basic knowledge of basketball. If you were to say LeBron James, Anthony Davis, and Russell Westbrook, and then on the other side, Ben Simmons, KD, and Kyrie Irving would be 2-10 and 10 to start this season. Again, with no prior knowledge to how this season has gone, 
you would probably laugh and say that's not possible. They have to at least have five wins amongst each other. There's no way that they only have to. Here we are. Both of them are atrocious. The Nets are literally sitting here, and they are making some of the worst teams in the league look good. The Magic are one in six. They're in that echelon of bad. The Pistons have more wins than them. The Hornets have more wins than them. The New York Knicks have more wins than them. How is that possible? At least the Lakers play in the Western Conference with the likes of freaking the Dallas Mavericks, the Clippers, the freaking Jazz, the Blazers, the the Grizzlies, uh, the, the Warriors. There are a multitude of teams that you would have assumed would have been better than what they are. Granted, some of the teams that I mentioned, you know, obviously the Clippers aren't doing much better either. But I'm saying for the record, this is ridiculous. How is this possible? This is the worst LeBron James has ever been in terms of record since he's been in the league. In 20 years, he's never been in outright last place 0-5 ever. Now they just won a game, but so I'm just saying, let that sink in. You do not need three to four caliber players to win games. You do not need to bring in players that are going to take up 80-something percent of your cap space. You do not need to have players outside of their prime on a roster. You need a player or two. AD and Braun, it worked just fine. Going after Russell, completely threw this team's chemistry out. KD and, Bra- and Kyrie, when Kyrie was on the court before the whole vaccination thing, they were doing fine in terms of just at least playing relatively well. They didn't do good in the playoffs, but again, they were playing at least relatively decent. Now, both teams are struggling just to get a win. The Nets got their, excuse me, the, the Lakers got their first win tonight. The NBA season has been going on for damn near two weeks. Unacceptable. Both teams are dog shit, and they need to get it together, or this season's going to get away from them quicker than it already is. Yeah, but honestly, I've got nothing else to add to that. You pretty much just took my thunder from me. and I, No, I really think that you just hit it on the head. I mean, when it comes to the Lakers this year, I didn't have that much of an expectation with them in the first place, just because I was in the mindset that they should have considered trading LeBron to start bringing in some younger talent into the fold. Because, Kev, we talked about this last year too. The Lakers have one of the oldest rosters in the NBA. They might arguably have the oldest one. I'd have to look up the stat, but I'm pretty sure that they have one of the oldest rosters to work with. And then when it comes to the Nets, the Nets just really don't have a lot of depth outside of KD, Ben Simmons, and Kyrie Irving. They just don't have a lot of pieces to work with that are effective to win you basketball games. And when you look at the rest of the landscape of, of the NBA, you look at the Warriors, for example. I know the Warriors are a little bit shaky right now, but we're only a couple games into the season, so they'll probably correct some of those issues. Kev, the Warriors are like 8, 9, 10 players deep. I mean, the, the Bucks are the same thing. You have 7, 8, 9 guys that are just rock solid in the rotation here. And that's what's going to win you games. And when your starters are out there 35, 40 minutes, and sometimes 40 minutes plus consistently, it's going to wear da- it's gonna wear you down eventually. You may be able to kind of skate through the first couple of months, but once you get into the second half of the season and then you get into the playoffs, those minutes add up. And especially with some older players. Granted, I know LeBron's still one of the best players in the NBA. I know Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. They're some of the most electrifying players in the league. But they are not getting any younger. These guys are basically at the end of their just their overall career in LeBron's case 
Katie's still probably in his prime, but probably on the tail end of it. Kyrie's Kyrie. Kyrie's been very consistent as far as I'm concerned, but he's on the court. But the years are starting to add up. And when it comes to both the Nets and the Lakers, respectively, I don't really see them being viable this year. You know, maybe the Nets might be the, the one team out of the two that make the playoffs. But I think if they make the playoffs, I think it's going to come in through a play-in tournament situation. Because let's face it, Kev, the Nets are giving up over like 120 points a game consistently. They don't have any defensive presence. And if they're able to fix that, good on them. But I'm not expecting that anytime soon. Even if you look at the Lakers, for example, the Lakers won their first game against the Nets. I think the score was 121 to 110. They still gave up 110 points. They had to score 121 points to do it. You're not going to be able to win basketball games that way. You compare that with the Bucs. Granted, the Bucs, when it comes to the playoffs, they're kind of a a team that, frankly, kind of looks terrible to watch in the playoffs. But they can win games defensively because they can just lock it down. And they can win those ugly games that nobody wants to watch. But they find a way to get wins. You know, you compare that to the Nets and the Lakers. The Lakers and the Nets are just a complete antithesis to that. So overall, you know, I don't expect much from either team this year, respectively. If the Nets were to make the playoffs, and they are the one team I would give a chance to make the playoffs out of the two, first round exit. They're going to be out of the first round. So any ideas of the Nets or the Lakers being in any way, shape, or form finals contenders? People are smoking on something that I have no idea even exists because I don't see it. It's bad. It's all around just bad performances. Doesn't look good for a lot of that. And and, and we are not going to get into the whole Russell Westbrook issue thing because the media has already talked about it enough. I've already chopped up Ben Simmons. He should have been traded. Like Rush should have been traded. I've 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 already gone into Ben Simmons. He scored nine points by the way yesterday when the Nets lost. So. Airballing layups, bro. Neither here nor there. So, guys, that's going to wrap it up for us today. I know Kyle and I still have some additional content to record tonight. So, before it gets any later, you know, we're going to wrap this up here. We appreciate all the support from every single platform. Everything's growing. It's been fun. I mean, Kyle and I have been, we've been grinding. Our nine to fives are kicking our asses. You know, we're still doing the whole, you know, adult thing that society tends to say is getting easier as time progresses, but it's not. Um, so for those of us, those young listeners, if you're in high school or younger, enjoy it while you can, because then you exactly. got to deal with life. Uh, so like I said, man, I appreciate it. My partner's been doing a great job. The editing has been crazy. Obviously, you know, we're coming up with ideas as best as we possibly can, but it's been fun. So can't say that it hasn't. But other than that, Kyle, you got anything else? No, I mean, outside of just the support that we've been getting over the last couple of weeks, we definitely appreciate it. So other than that, no, Kev, I'm good here so take us on out bro all right well ladies and gentlemen obviously we'll have content coming out throughout the rest of the week we have the monday night game tomorrow uh we have the power ranking videos that we normally drop every monday tuesday so we will be recording as i said throughout the week but we'll see you guys again for a full episode on friday have a good night guys peace Miles, are you ready to record our promo for season two of the Wanna Bet podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that season two starts August 18th. 
but I like Airplane. I know you do, but WannaBet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. So no more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric Acid. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, that's no, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big hole. On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid.